0: Good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you today. Thanks for singing, guys. Really appreciate that. Let's pray together, shall we, as we turn our attention to God's word. Please pray with me. Father, it is good to be in your house with your people. It is good to worship you together with one voice, with one song. It is good to have hearts and minds that are directed to you and the things of you, and So we pray uh, this morning that you would continue to engage us in this worship. We pray that through your word that you would speak to us, that your spirit would encourage us and challenge us. We pray that you would continue your your refining work in us, and as Pastor Marty said just a few moments ago, God, that you would change us. Do this wonderful work in us, we ask, in the name of your son, Jesus, Amen. On July 18th, 1969, Senator Ted Kennedy was hosting a party on Chappaquiddick Island, which is a small island off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Senator Kennedy, as you know, was the younger brother of President John F. Kennedy and of Bobby Kennedy, who was killed during his presidential run of 1968 and that night on Chappaquiddick Island proved to be a tragic one after a long night of partying Ted Kennedy who was a married man got into a car with a female companion named Mary Jo Kopechny and they drove to catch a ferry back to Edgartown on Martha's Vineyard uh, that evening on the way Kennedy crashed the car, and it slid off the road and into a tidal channel and was partially submerged in the water. And what happens next is certainly up for conjecture, but a number of things we know for certain. Kennedy left the car in the water, and Mary Jo Kopechny was still in the car. He walked to the tidal, or to the slip where the ferry was supposed to be, and since it wasn't there, he swam a mile in ocean water back to Edgartown, where he went to his hotel, he changed his clothes, and he went to bed. The next morning, he woke up nine to ten hours later, and then, and only then, did he finally report the accident. And later that afternoon... Divers pulled the car out of the channel, and they found that Mary Jo had died of drowning or suffocation. Now, many believe that Ted Kennedy fled the scene of that accident to save his own political career. And that night, he left a poor woman to die in the channel. That's why he didn't report it right away. He needed time to get his story straight. That is why he swam back to Martha's Vineyard, because it doesn't look good for a sitting U.S. Senator to be in a car with another woman who wasn't his wife, especially after a long night of drinking. Many believe that Mary Jo Kopechny died because Ted Kennedy's political aspirations were more important to him than her life was. And there were calls for stiff prosecution But in the end, Kennedy later pleaded guilty to merely leaving the scene of an accident. And from there, he went on to serve in the United States Senate for over 40 more years. In fact, when Ted Kennedy died, his 47 years in the U.S. Senate made him the fourth longest serving senator in the history of the United States of America. And on the day of his funeral in 2009, the streets of Hyannis, Massachusetts were filled with thousands upon thousands of people giving honor and respect to this man. And for some, really for many who watched, the whole thing just seemed surreal. The man that many believed to be a murderer was lauded as a political hero in our country and the question is raised why was he allowed to succeed why did God allow him to succeed why do any of the wicked succeed in their plans And that is the question and even the accusation against God that we find in our text this morning. So I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Malachi. And this morning we continue in this series that we're calling Renewing Faithfulness. Malachi chapter 217 is found on page 802 of that Pew Bible. It's a short section of text this morning, so I encourage you to open and to follow along. We're looking at what it means to renew faithfulness to God, no matter where we are in our life and our worship and our rebellion or our apathy or our struggles. What does it mean to be faithful to him and renew that faithfulness to him? The people of Israel were struggling in a variety of ways, and one of the accusations that they had against God is this very accusation that we're talking about this morning. If you see Malachi chapter 2.17, it begins like this. God is speaking through the prophet and he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? The temptation is common to us all, isn't it? We look around and we see people doing things that are sinful, doing things that are illegal, doing things that hurt other people and promote themselves. And we think to ourselves immediately, they should be struck down for what they're doing. I mean, that is just not right. We all have people who just get under our skin as we watch their advancement at work or in society, and yet they're allowed to succeed. Some of them become rich. Some others become powerful or influential. Some become famous. We know what they're like behind the scenes, but when the bright lights are shining, it doesn't seem to matter. They're successful. And God allows them to be successful. And so the accusation arises. God must love those who do evil, the Israelites say. Where is the God of justice? Because surely he is not around these parts. But when we think about that line of questioning, we realize that it's really only partially a line of questioning against God, and partially it's focused on other people. I mean, after all, we ask those types of questions out of jealousy, don't we? Not truly accusing God's character, even though The accusation here comes against his character. These people aren't saying, God, I don't like what you're doing. They're saying, God, I don't like who you are because you're letting those people get ahead of me. And in fact, the more we think about it, These types of accusations that they made, these are the types of accusations that we make, are really not based on a desire for God to make the situation truly right. Instead, they're questioning God's willingness or his ability to make these situations right at all. But God waits. And he waits. And he waits. And we feel like it would just be a lot easier if God acted quickly, but He waits. Why? Well, the question in and of itself is self serving. I mean, it assumes that God should work things out on our timetable, doesn't it? I mean, after all, we know best, and God exists very simply to serve our needs, doesn't He? But He doesn't do that, He waits. And he waits, and he waits. Is he unjust in his waiting? Well, to answer that question, we need to understand why God waits. Why did he wait to judge the wicked in the time of Israel? Why does he wait to judge your colleagues at work who lie and cheat and get ahead And it seems to be working for them. it feels like it would be much easier if God exacted his judgment in the moment, doesn't it? I mean, when you stop to think about it, we sort of viscerally want God to judge right now. But when we pause and consider what that really means, it doesn't seem like such a great idea, does it? I mean, after all, Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. Oops, I told a lie, gone. Oops, I didn't honor my parents, gone. Oops, I lusted, gone. Oops, I slandered somebody, gone. Oops, I coveted somebody, gone. If God judged everyone immediately, there would be no one left, including you. And so now, all of a sudden, we think to ourselves, well, it would be really thankful that God waits. And the fact that he waits tells us that he has a clear plan in his waiting. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. He reveals some of that plan. This is the section of Malachi that moves into prophecy, what God is going to do. He says, behold. He will sit as a refiner and as a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. So God has a plan Why does he wait to judge the wicked? He has a plan, and that plan revealed here is that he is going to send two messengers. The first messenger, verse 1, tells us is a messenger described as one who will prepare the way before God. Who do you think that's talking about? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, talks about this messenger as well, as do a number of other prophecies of the Old Testament. Isaiah 43 says... A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then we fast forward some hundreds of years. And in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we see a combination of Malachi chapter 3 quoted and Isaiah chapter 40. It refers to a messenger who will prepare your way. And his name is John the Baptist. So God delays judgment of the wicked so that John the Baptist can come. 400 years of delay. It's a long time to wait. And yet he waits. And he waits. And he waits. The second messenger we see in verse 1 is described as the messenger of the covenant. He's described as the Lord himself and his coming is said to be glorious and his role of cleansing is one that applies to the inhabitants of the earth. This is a prophecy about Jesus. Messenger number one, God delays his judgment because John the Baptist is coming. Messenger number two, God delays the judgment because Jesus is coming. And this Jesus is given a description of a cleansing role in sort of three ways. Look with me at verse two. It says he's like a refiner's fire. It says he's like a fuller's soap. In verse three it says he's a purifier of silver and a refiner of gold. Now the description of a fuller's soap is the type of cleaning agent used for laundry. Very simply in the ancient world it's the strong version of Tide. Soiled and stained clothing would be scrubbed with this soap as they were hand-washed. Likewise, to say that this messenger is coming like a refiner's fire as a purifier of gold and silver is an image that when you begin to apply to people is both wonderful and incredibly painful at the same time. Metals often contained dirt, impurities, different types of alloy. And the only way to make them pure was to bring them to a smelter or a person who was able to refine them. And the way that he would refine the metal is that he would heat the silver or gold to a temperature just a little bit warmer than you cooked your pizza yesterday in the oven. Over 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. And the metal would melt. And the impurities would burn away. And what was left behind was a pure piece of precious metal. God promises to refine his people, to purify his people through the person of Jesus. In verses 3 and 4, go on to tell us that it's only then only after the refining are they able to give righteous offerings it's only after the refining can they are they able to please god with their offerings he waits to judge the wicked so that they will be prepared for his coming and they will be cleansed and refined when he does now think about this with me for a minute think about what this says about god The God that we often say, where is the God of justice as I watch my neighbor do that thing again and again and again and he's seemingly happy? Where is the God of justice as I watch the corporate climbers stab people in the back on their way to the top? Is he unjust in his waiting? Just the opposite. He's not unjust in his waiting. He's actually incredibly merciful in his waiting. The holy, perfect God who cannot tolerate sin, who loathes evil, who weeps when his beloved choose a path that are different than the one that he presents for them. The God who lives in all perfection and glory. This God patiently abides as his creation continues to destroy itself as his people continue to wander. And in his abiding, he is exacting his plan for mercy and redemption. Think about what this says for Israel. Malachi is primarily written to the Israelites of the Old Testament, secondarily to the rest of us. This meant for this group of people that we've been looking at over the last number of weeks, this group of people who were called to be God's one Nation, but continued to stray with wandering eyes and wandering hearts. This group of people that was apathetic at times and open in their rebellion at other times. This group of people who worshiped God half-heartedly and married the daughters of foreign gods. This group of people that deserved judgment time and time and time again were instead given more and more and more time. So that God would reveal himself again in the form of his son in order to purify them. Think about what this means for us. For some of us, the idea that God waits means that even though we've been casual or half-hearted in our approach to God, even though we've been dipping our toes in the water for a long time, but we've been yet to profess faith or surrender ourselves to him. He's been waiting for us. For others, who have surrendered themselves to God, but when you really stop to think about it, the fact that the gospel, God's saving work in Jesus, isn't just about your salvation, but it's also about your purification, your ongoing refining and that God would take an active role in each and every one of your lives in changing you, refining you, purifying you. That he's not distant in that sense and just sort of waves his hand and things happen but for you and you and you and you and you he is actively honing down the rough edges of your sinful nature. This is absolutely amazing. I mean, when you put your faith in Jesus, God forgives your sins. He gives you a pure legal standing before him. He gives you the standing of his son. And at that time, you can give offerings for the very first time that are pleasing to him. But practically speaking, this ongoing purifying work in you, this is called your sanctification, where God shaves down the rough edges, where he continues to scrub you clean. Where he takes the stains and the dirt of your lives and does something incredible with them. And Now some of you might say, "I, Pastor Nick, I don't want to be scrubbed clean. <laughs> I like my life the way that it is. Or the idea of entering the fire for being purified, that sounds painful to me. I live my life trying to avoid pain. And to maximize pleasure. And yet, if you're here today and you are a child of God's, refine you, he will. And he does it in a variety of ways. One of the ways that he refines you is that when his word, the scriptures are appropriated to your lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and you change the way that you're living, this is sort of Positive course correction. He's refining you. One of the ways that he refines you is that when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, negative course correction. (laughs) He refines you. But one of the ways that God refines his people is the way that none of us want, and that is very often through pain, affliction, and suffering. Like the clothes feel the bristle of the scrub brush with the fuller soap. Like the metal feels the heat of the refiner's fire and it melts under its pressure. So do the refining acts of God in your life hurt sometimes. And rather than this being a sign that he's absent, in fact, it is just the opposite. It is a sign that he's present. And it reveals something incredible about you and really where you are spiritually before him. C.S. Lewis says that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. And when we suffer... Afflictions of some kind, and all of us do. They reveal who you are, what you value the most, and where do you turn in the moment of those sufferings. And that is part of the refiner's fire. When things are really bad, who do you go to? And what do you do? Do you seek some sort of self-soothing or self-satisfying pleasure? Do you turn to the bottle Do you lash out in rage? Or do you lean on the one who saved you? Where do you turn? What do you do when things get really tough? Responding to affliction and allowing us to run toward God is an important work of this refiner. And so next time you're in a hard place in life, Notice what your response is. What does your default setting turn to in those instances? And what does that reveal about the work that God is trying to do in you at the time? George Whitfield once said a prayer that not many of us would have the courage to pray. He said, may God put me into one furnace after another that my soul may be transparent and that I may see God as he is. You want to know the amazing thing about God's plan, his eternal plan. God waits to judge the wicked because he wants to redeem the saints. And he wants more and more and more of those who do evil things to come into his fold He chases them down. He goes after them. The hounds of heaven have their way on this divine hunt for the next person to enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus. And God is waiting. He's waiting for more to put their faith in him. He's even waiting for you. Now, tonight is Super Bowl 50. Did anybody know that? What's going on tonight? Clearly the best team in the NFL is in the Super Bowl, the Carolina Panthers, and then there's that other team. (laughs) Super Bowl 50 will have 70,000 plus people in attendance, and another 190 million people will watch it on TV. Now imagine with me that you have a ticket for that game tonight, but that you were negligent in your travel plans. You got to San Francisco late. On your way to the stadium, you were stuck in traffic. And so you decided that you were just going to stop and have casual dinner with your buddies and then go on to the game. You arrived a half hour late as a result. But as you arrived, you realized that they hadn't started the game yet. They were waiting for you. 70,000 people, 190 million on TV, all waiting for a couple more to enter the stadium. You see, this is not in any way an inaccurate picture of how God treats those that he's waiting for. God allows history to advance and to move on, and yet he delays the full revealing of his glory. He waits even longer because some of the people haven't arrived yet. They haven't put their faith in him. And while he's waiting patiently, there are others of us who are just not ready for the game to begin. And so he refines and purifies us. Thank God for the wait. I thank God for the wait because the wait means that more of us are going to be with him. Why does God wait to judge the wicked? I thank God for that wait. Because more of us will be with him. The question for Israel is why did God wait? The question for us is why does God still wait? I mean, think about it. The prophecy in many ways has been fulfilled. God waited to judge Israel because he wanted to send John the Baptist and then Jesus to do his refining work. We now live in a time after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The question is valid. Why does he still wait? And the answer is the exact same. Jesus' work isn't done yet. More and more people need to hear the gospel. They need to turn from their sins. They need to turn toward a Savior. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's loving disposition is one of patience. And so the question becomes, as we look at verse 5, are we ready? At the beginning, Israel was asking the question, and we asked the question, where is this God of justice? But the real question is, are you ready for the God of justice to come? Look with me at verse 5 and look at this description. Many have been purified, many have been refined. And God says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Just because God has been waiting doesn't mean he's going to wait forever. Are you ready? I thank God for the wait. Because the wait means that more of us will be with him. But his justice is real. (laughs) And his judgment is coming. You know, during the Middle Ages... There was a law in England that provided a way for sinners to find refuge. When a criminal or a debtor wanted to flee to safety, he would travel to the famous Durham Cathedral and he would plead for asylum. The runaway banged on the cathedral north the door using an enormous bronze knocker. And then that fugitive desperately clung to the knocker's ring waiting for someone to usher him into the church and to hear the toll of the church bell notify the citizens of Durham that a felon sought sanctuary. At night, two people would stand in the room above the north door and they would simply watch and they would wait for asylum seekers, criminals, to come and seek sanctuary. Sanctuary. Once inside, the criminal confessed his crime to a priest, surrendered his weapons, and paid a nominal fee. From there, he donned a black gown, and he lived in a railed-off alcove above the southwest tower. And within 37 days, decided whether to stand trial for his crimes or to leave the country. And if the criminal chose to quit the kingdom, The law afforded him the opportunity to exit England's borders within nine days. They had to travel solely on the king's highway. And for the journey, they would carry nothing with them. They would wear nothing on their head, and they would wear a white robe while simply holding a wooden cross. For centuries, the sanctuary principle remained the same in England. If you committed a horrible crime, run to the church for protection. And during that anxious journey, signs of the cross often pointed the way. Stone crosses inscribed with the word sanctuarium stood as signposts among the highways and the byways, leading sinners to their haven. The practice blessed the repentant offenders. With forgiveness and a clean start. Today, it's difficult for us to condone this idea of protection. I mean, offering asylum to criminals? Their presence tarnishes a community, a country. They should be punished. We don't like such lavish compassion. But thankfully, God's compassion is deeper than ours. And his love flows deeper and wider than we can imagine. And so does his mercy. Early medieval sanctuary laws only faintly reflect God's endless patience. Whatever sin we commit, however many times we fail, he forgives us through the work of his son Jesus. God waits in the night for our souls, swinging open his broad door of grace when we flee to him and repent. And he accepts us however we arrive. I thank God that he waited and that he waits to judge the wicked because I was one of them. I thank God that he waits to judge the wicked because you were one of them. If you've put your place, your faith in Jesus and accepted him, you were one of them. I thank God that he waits to judge the wicked because some of you are still one of them. And The work that he has for you has not yet been taken hold of because of your lack of faith, because of your lack of surrender, because of your lack of commitment. And yet he waits for you. And the call for you is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and he can forgive you. Believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead and he lives forevermore and you will be saved I thank God for the weight because it means that more of us will be with him